Hey Producer Cast family, welcome to episode 60 of Producer Cast, where we turn producers into pros. I'm your host, Andrew Lowe, and today we have something very, very special for you. We have an interview guest today, Sam Moses of Moses Mastering. This is the mastering engineer between many chart-topping hits, tons of records you've heard before. So we're just going to dive right in and hear what Sam has to say, hear from his experiences of how he got to where he is today, as well as some of his top tips for mastering. So you're not going to want to miss it, so stick around, we're jumping right in. Hey, yeah, we've got Sam Moses from Moses Mastering here today, and uh, we're just going to chop it up all about production and mastering and his work as a mastering engineer. So, Sam, can you tell us about how you got started as a mastering engineer? Absolutely. Uh, first, I just want to tell your audience that it's a gift to be here, and it's nice to talk thank to you. you. So thank you for having me on. And uh, I'll give a disclaimer that everything I'm about to say is highly uh, bias to my my life and my lifestyle and, and what I wanted in life uh, while doing music, which is probably a large part of the podcast in general. But I found over the last seven years of doing mastering and being 10 years in audio total, it's um, everything that people tell you as far as advice or their story should be filtered through, you know, your own lens. So anything I say to your audience today I want everybody to basically take it and figure out what's good about it and what works and use that or apply that wisdom and anything else you disagree with, just trash it. That's fine. (laughs) Not a big deal. (laughs) So everybody's different. Everybody's got a different path and that's a lot of my story. And, you know, for me getting into mastering, the first time I experienced mastering was when I was in a band probably 12 years ago. And we got to the mastering stage after we cut an album, approved mixes, and it then went to this guy who was going to do something to it. And um, I just kept getting told that it was going to come back like better or louder or, or more, you know, polished or like icing on the cake. And um, we sent it off to him and he mastered it. We got it back a few days later. And personally, at that stage, I couldn't tell a difference. (laughs) Like, I don't think as a band, you know, and this is something I I work hard at within my mastering career and with my clients is helping educate them. That's why I started my own podcast two, three years ago called The Attack and Release Show, which I'm shouting that out in your podcast. Um, But I learned quickly that most people um, don't understand what really almost anything is production, mixing, mastering, songwriting. Um, and why would you, if you're, if you're doing one of those things, um, you know, you usually hire out a team to do the rest, which makes sense. You know, you're not the expert at, at the other parts. So you hired out and you normally don't know much about it, but I've found the more people do learn about these things, such as mastering, the better the end product we usually get. Cause people can kind of start to think about, all right, step one is songwriting, write the song, start producing it, you know, then actually do like a real session, engineer it, edit it, comp it all together, send it off to the mixer, mixer mixes it, producer, band approves it, sends it to mastering. To me, I master it, getting context of the whole, you know, how is it written? What's the vision? What's the goal? What are we trying to do here? Where's it going to go? Is it going to a label? blah, blah. And then that will dictate, you know, kind of the approach I take to the mastering. Um, But anyway, to go back to your question, you know, I got into it basically after getting ours back, our album back and going, I don't know really what happened or what changed. So A, I was very curious to like what this process was because recording is like very tangible. It's like you show up, you play something and it gets recorded and then you hit space bar, play it back or on tape, hit play on a console or whatever. And you get to hear it. So it's like, I understand that. That makes a lot of sense. And then the mix stage is kind of like, you know, you send all these sources that were recorded. And sometimes you can do attended mix sessions, which we did that with our mixer at the band when I was in the band. And you got to sit there and you could tangibly tell, okay, the kick drum's louder, softer. You know, it's something tangible. But then with mastering, there's not, especially now there's not a ton of attended mastering sessions anymore. Um, and even, even a couple sessions I did attend, um, 
it's really interesting because at the end of the mastering stage, your your high uh, quality control, your basic job to me is is to listen and tell you if your album is done or not, you know. Um, and so sometimes if your mixer is great and everything's sitting really great, the mastering engineer may just say, let's just get this up to like commercial level where it needs to be or for CD and that's it. And so you could sit there and watch a guy just listen to it and go, that's great, which should be a, a celebration. But then some people go, well, you didn't do anything. But the thing is you did do something because especially me at this stage, like I've consumed so much music. I work on thousands of projects a year and I just know at this stage what a finished product sounds like. So until you understand what a mastering engineer's job is, um, it's very hard to understand if it's even worth having <laughs> or hiring out, um, which I think it, it is. And that's why I do it for a career. But basically with the band thing, I, I learned that um, that mastering does something and it finishes a record. And then I was really curious about it. And then I thought, well, I feel like since I feel since I feel like nothing happened, I feel like that's a career choice I could get into and, and do that same thing, <laughs> which is like, we gave him a bunch of money. He sent something back. It sounded, I guess, you know, I listen to it now. I have the before and after 12 years later, and he did make it better and more cohesive from start to finish, um, which is one of our jobs. But uh, I just got super curious about it. And so I started uh, exploring mastering, which at that time, looked a lot like an L2 limiter from Waves or something, taking off five or six dB and, and calling that a master because it was just louder. Um, and that is a very, uh, loudness is important, but it's a very small part of the equation. And um, I feel like any master engineer who's great knows that loudness is pretty easy to come by and to achieve if you get the right EQ balance going and use proper mastering techniques, we can get things pretty much as loud as you would want. Um, so that, that was something I demystified early on, which was like great masters aren't just loud, they're, they're balanced and loud usually, especially in the modern context of music where people want things compressed, highly compressed, which is creates our loudness, perceived loudness. So I got into mastering, um, basically by understanding that we paid this master engineer a lot of money. Uh, I was in the band, our band stopped, uh, kind of dissolved within a couple of years. And uh, I went back to kind of the producers and engineers and basically said like, I wanna, I wanna do that side of audio instead of having to gig the rest of my life and tour. Like I wanna do the job where I get paid up front and it doesn't matter if the song gets famous or not. I get paid the same amount of money. <laughs> so that sounded like an easier route. Um, so that's, that was kind of the choice I made. You know, I was newly married as well. And so I wasn't making much money off the band thing. And uh, I just started self-taught mastering. I started reading books, which there are not very many good mastering books. There's maybe two. And I don't even feel like those are great, that great anymore after being in audio for 12 years. I think I would like to write a mastering book um, just because there's not a lot of material on it. And um, yeah, a self-taught and it was a lot of trial and error and, you know, speed the story along like four or five years. You know, we met in Florida. Uh, I started doing independent work down there on top of the church job and started becoming like a one-stop shop to online clients in a few different studios in Florida. And the one-stop shop thing means like I was basically producing it, engineering it, mixing it, mastering it, um, which is kind of great because you kind of learn everything, but you don't really, it's the old thing of like you're a jack of all trades. It's usually like you're not great at anything. You're just good at a bunch of things. And I kind of felt like my goal was always to become, well, not always, but I wanted to make records at the highest level. So I wanted to be able to learn from the people who make records I like. I wanted to be in a place that people made music every day at, at the highest level. And um, after a couple of years in Florida, my wife and I basically felt like 
we need to move to Nashville because Nashville's where a bunch of the records I love are being made. And I had some friends there who were in the music industry, all touring, none, none in the studio side, but um, we moved to Nashville and uh, I had one country project lined up that I was engineering, mixing and mastering and uh, met a guy named Michael Hughes who has a studio on the west side of town, a wonderful person. Uh, he has a amazing home studio and when I say home studio it his whole basement got fully decked out to the studs um, so it's it's way more than a home studio <laughs> it's a studio that just happens to be in the house um, but he gave me kind of my first shot in Nashville we did a project together um, and he thought I was decent and asked if I wanted to start helping out on some of his stuff and then kind of within a year he was one of the first people that helped me kind of see he was like your website and everything you just kind of advertise everything like you engineer you produce you mix you master and you like making beats too and he's like you need to in in nashville you can do one thing and get paid a lot for that one thing you don't have to think that you need to do six things to make ends meet um, you can if you want to but if you really want to start making records and getting hired to do the bigger records labels and big mix engineers they don't go and hire the person that does seven different things they want to hire the mastering guy not just the mastering guy the mastering guy that does pop and not just pop but female pop like they get really specific because they want the best team possible usually so i basically cleared my whole website from sam lightning which was like my my production beats everything catch-all uh, handle and website and switched to Moses Mastering. I just went with something super simple, rebranded and said, okay, uh, I'm just going to focus on mastering because that comes really naturally to me. And my buddy Michael just kept affirming me, which is a big like key point of anything that people affirm you in is something you should pay attention to. Because a lot of the times with mastering, that was one of the easiest things I felt like I did in audio. It came naturally to me. I hear things people don't hear. I know how to balance things out. I have a insane catalog of music in my head um, that just naturally is kind of there. And I know what a finished record sounds like. And that's a, a gifting and also a training and practice. But uh, for a long, for the first couple of years, I didn't think much about being a full-time master engineer because it became super easy. It was super easy for me. And a lot of times when things are really easy for you, those are the things you're actually really great at, but you dismiss it because it's easy. So mastering was super easy. Engineering felt like it was hard. There was friction. Mixing, it's close, it's pretty easy, but there's still some friction mastering i'd master something and people would be like this is great you're awesome <laughs> you know it was like the easiest thing um quote unquote easy you know there's things within it but uh you know i got affirmed in that and i thought okay i'll just do moses mastering i'm going to focus on mastering and carving my lane and i'm going to focus on making records uh sound how i think they should sound while also honoring the client's vision and references and integrity and goal. So I just started mastering. I quit basically mixing. I quit basically producing. And I spent about four straight years just telling everyone I'm a master engineer. I'm a master engineer. I did. I had no credits really. I had no label connections, but I had started reading business books and marketing books. And basically the continual thing was, super easy you need to make sure people know who you are what you do and where they can find you and you rinse and repeat that a thousand times like to people so nashville is a pretty tight-knit music community the first couple of years no one gave a crap about what i did um you know i had a handful of clients it was really really tough the first few years but i stuck with it i got better and i just kept telling people anybody i meet online or in person or at a show you know, I just swung for the fences. I would just say, I'm a master engineer. What do you do? And that confidence, um, people pay attention to that. If you just come up to them and say, this is what I do. And so many people limp into what they do 
especially in Nashville, they might say, well, I'm, a, uh, I, I'm trying to songwrite. Well, what is trying to songwrite? You're either a songwriter or you're not, you know. Have you written songs? Yes. Well, then you're a songwriter. Are the songs good? Well, that's a different discussion. But you're a songwriter, you know. And that's kind of how mastering was, is I was a master engineer. Was I really great seven or eight years ago? Some of the projects were really great, and some of them weren't great, you know. Like, that's just where I was, and that's fine, and we're all on a journey, and we all will most likely get better. But if you just try and do the best you can and view the current project as a timestamp between you and the client, knowing you're, you're going to make more music together, um, it kind of relieves that stress of, can we make it better? It's kind of like, well, who cares? We both know you'll probably write a better song next year and I'll probably master it better, <laughs> you know? So let's, let's celebrate what we have here and, and put that out and then create some more stuff and, you know, do that. So that's kind of, that's how I got into it. Um, I shadowed a couple people in town for a few weeks here and there, big, big time mastering guys quickly learned that the old school mastering thought is very much, um, you want to be like a ninja. You want to, you want to do something to it, but not let the client know. Basically it was very mystical black magic, the typical old way people approach mastering, which is like you put fairy dust on it or it's, you know, and really mastering is not any of that. Mastering is very technical, just like, recording drums is very technical you know it's there are things we do and techniques we apply that get you the end product that may sound like your same song but better but there's 100 percent a way to do it and there's a way to explain it um which we could get into but that's probably a whole other podcast but yeah it's i i watched a couple guys in town who has they both are wonderful people great great you know lots of grammys great records and um, I basically learned from them, they do, they both worked very differently than each other and they work differently than me. And I kind of just observed from them that here are two very successful guys who master albums, totally different, totally different gear, totally different setup, different speakers, and they're both crushing it. And so I thought this, I'm starting to understand that in a music city like Nashville, you want to become someone who has a sound and that sound is actually super easy to find because really you just make music how you how you want to hear it <laughs> and that becomes your sound and then you understand that most people won't like what you do but that's normal across every industry like if you think about the grand scheme of of music and even like a Justin Bieber who I really like, but Justin Bieber like statistically is the most hated artist of all time. Like most people hate him overall. And he has the most like down votes of any YouTube video ever, but he's a massive star. One of the top probably five pop people and probably for the next hundred years. Um, so once you understand that in this, in in all industries of business but especially music because it's art and it's contextually bound and we're kind of like tastemakers you're going to get lots of people who don't like what you do but it doesn't mean it's a personal attack it's more of like a, you're trying to find the best fit is how i view it sometimes you're a good fit for some people and some other clients you're a terrible fit and that doesn't mean you're not good at your job it just means you're not the right fit for that client and there's probably another master engineer down the street who would be a better fit so that's kind of how I, I got into it. Um, and I absolutely adore it. So awesome. That's so awesome. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really, it's really awesome. Cause you know, I've known you for, for a few years and just seeing how, how you've grown into that. And uh, I, I want to ask about like, what were some of the kind of major wins uh, along the way, you know, to, to get where you are today, like bigger credits. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the first thing is everybody starts with no credits. So a lot of people think like, how do you get the big credits? Well, you get it by having credits or something or you leverage things, which is part of business. But my, all my big breaks have basically come from being second and being the second call. Like my first label gig um, came basically uh, from the engineer becoming sick then the artist was sick and then the engineer producer 
had to go on tour and my role that whole time was like making tea and being like a runner and holding the door for artists and, and clients and stuff. So, and this was at a studio at Michael's studio, the first guy. And, um, you know, my job, I was hired on as like a assistant intern to basically dial in vocals and drums, turn knobs on 1176 and tube tech and gains, you know, just be an assistant engineer. Um, and we basically like cut one song before these people got sick and then they didn't really like the way it sounded from the mix point, the mixer who had mixed it, um, didn't do a great job with what I, what we had captured and what we had captured in the room, I thought sounded really great. And the artist was really happy and A&R came over and checked it out and he was really happy. And so I felt like my, my, my antenna went off and just was like, I think I can make this better. Like I can mix this better. And so I just shot, I took my shot and I emailed the artist and said, Hey, give me one day. I want to mix this. You know, I'm a no name mixer. I want to mix it. Here's a couple things I've done that are similar, you know, just proof of concept that I'm not going to hopefully waste your time, but let me get a shot. Like I, I helped engineer this. I know what this sounds like. I know what you want. And I agree this mix sucks. Like <laughs> it's just not a representation of what we did in the room. So I mixed it in like a day, like 24 hour turnaround. And then they were like, this is great. This will work. And so from there, the other mixer basically got fired and I got hired to like finish. I ended up engineering everything pretty much and then mixing everything, doing a little bit of mastering. I actually ended up getting sent off to finish the album to a, a big, I call them a big box mastering place. But that was kind of my first sort of been like the first year I was in town. You know, I, I got a label gig under my belt for a pretty large uh, CCM artist. And that was like, you know, I thought my career was like made by then because it was like an artist. It was a, a full length that I engineered and mastered or mixed like right out of the gate of being in town. So that was kind of like, people were like, what the heck, who is this person? <laughs> like, and so that was kind of, you know, a buzz creator, but then, um, you know, it was something like people knew and recognized and my mom knew it and, and people knew what it was and knew who the artist was and it was on the radio and stuff. And that it kind of, you know, it made me think like, Oh, I've made it, I've done my career, but really in reality, um, that was just one project you get paid for it. And then you need more money. <laughs> you need more projects because the bills keep coming. So, um, so that was like a first big break. Uh, and it came from just showing up, you know, I'd been showing up at the studio doing, whatever was needed for a good you know six months and I agreed to take to be a part of this project basically knowing I'm going to be making tea running drinks and and running lines and dialing in sounds you know here and there and jump it in wherever needed and then it turned out to me basically recording and mixing a, a full length and that was kind of the start of the label world and um, that was a big win and then another one big win was my wife nannies she nannied at the time and she got paired up with um a really big engineer and producer in town who she went through an agency so she didn't know who she was interviewing to be their nanny and um ended up getting paired with this amazing family and then i got to know the family and honestly I didn't have any, I didn't, I slow, I don't even say slow play because that sounds even sleazy. I just, I've taken the approach over the years that if something's going to work out, the universe will just figure it out. That doesn't mean you're like passive, but you just show up and take things as they come. And if there's an opportunity that opens itself, then you can say, hey, I'm here. I'd like to shoot my shot. <laughs> and then they can say yes or no. But um, this producer engineer, basically I got to know him and his family for the first couple of years we were here. And um, he 
we eventually, after like two years of just building a relationship, he asked me what I did. And I said, I was a master engineer. And uh, he was like, well, I normally send it to like Sterling or whatever. And I don't really like it. I don't really understand what's coming back, but that's just kind of what we do. And there's a, there's a full length that um, we got back. We don't really love. So if you want to master this like on spec for free, you know, I'll show it to the artist. And if they like it, you can get paid, you know, they got a full budget again. It was like a label gig. And then, you know, maybe I can start sending you stuff. So I did that album, was extremely nervous the whole time, but I just trusted my gut and, and approached it as, you know what, if this is going to work, it's only going to work out and be a great relationship. If I just, in me, if I'm just Sam and I master it, how I think it needs to sound based on my experience thus far and what, you know, the clients describe they want. So I did that and I won, I won the shootout. <laughs> so then from there, he, uh, I mean, I've, he's given me almost, you know, every record he's done the last four years and that there's some big records in that. And, um, you know, he was kind of like a, a champion of me and, and started telling people in Nashville about me, you know, as, who his master engineer was. And that led to a bunch of different bands, you know, trusting his opinion that if he says I'm good, then the bands think I'm good, you know, and that was kind of like a leverage land grab opportunity that happened naturally. But once again, like in both these stories, they're the typical, but not typical way of like one came from being the tea maker basically. And one came from my wife, Nanny, but both came from, and this is like the wisdom is like, I put myself in a city to where that could even be possible. So like, I'm a firm believer that me moving to Nashville upped my chances of success by who knows, a hundred X because music is made here every day. It's not weird to get paid to make music. Records people like and listen to are made here every day. So it's not weird if you eventually end up on those records, like the chances of success are just so high by putting yourself in a music city in a position to succeed compared to when I was back in Chicago or even West Palm where like you can become the, the big fish in the little pond and, and even being the big fish still doesn't mean you're making records people care about or learning from people who make records you care about. So that's part of my big win too is like I, I moved to Nashville you know, that immediately at least gave me a chance to, to learn from great people and have the opportunity to say, hey, I could master that, you know, give me a shot, you know, maybe I do great, maybe I don't, but I think I can do a good job. This is a, the type of music I like. I can, you know, I'm aware of it. I feel like I know what it needs to sound like. So let me, let me take a shot. And sometimes people give you a chance and sometimes people don't. But those are like two two major wins, you know, and, and from there, you know, you start kind of leveraging those projects, the brand, the labels, you know, people, people want to see that you work with Capitol Records or you work with Sony or, you know, it was a number one on Billboard or something. When you get those things, any smart business will then start leveraging that and you put that all over, you know, not in a cocky way, but it's just, it's a it's a trust creator instantly with new clients where they go, Oh, if you've worked with these professional people, then you must be good. It's, it's kind of a brand association thing, but that's kind of, you know, those two things catapulted my career, you know, and after that, I just kept reaching out to people. And I mean, continually always, even to this day, I still talk to new, new people online that I just find interesting. Like, if I like your music, I'll probably reach out to you and say, I want to master it. And at this stage, I'm in a spot, thankfully, that like money is, I need money, but it's, I'm able to take on projects for lesser rates or even free just because I like, I like the music and I want to try and support artists that I think are cool. So those are a couple of things. I mean, the third thing I'll say is like, you have to educate yourself in business and marketing and understand that the music industry is a hundred percent of business. And one of my favorite books, rich dad, poor dad by guy Kawasaki. He's um, 
there's a chapter where he basically helps you see that the things that are most successful in life are best selling, not like best created or best quality. So we live in a world that even in the music industry, best selling is gold albums, platinum albums, you know, billboard awards. Those are best selling things. They're not necessarily the best. That doesn't mean it's the most creative artistic thing out there. And when I read that, my mind basically exploded and I understood, well, if I'm just, you know, if I can be the best selling master engineer, learn how to sell my service, not in a sleazy way, but find people that need what I do and the way I hear things, partner with those people that make records I like. And if I, you know, sell to them correctly, then I can be the best selling or best master engineer. And I stopped focusing so much on like, trying to be the most creative or like high fidelity mastering engineer. And I just started saying, you know what, this is kind of what I do. This is how I do it. These are the pieces of gear I like. These are the speakers I like. Some of them are normal. Some of them are not. And um, I'm going to just start selling instead of worrying about what ratio on a limiter, you know, a compressor to use. (laughs) And those things are all very important, but the main win for me was shifting into this business mindset, which was if I understand that Moses Mastering is a company and that it will only survive if I get clients to basically purchase my product, hire me, you know, my service. And if I market it like a business, like any other industry does, then I'm going to be totally fine. And, and it worked. Not only did it worked, it's, you know, it's part of my career growth is I learned how to sell my service and most people don't. Most people just obsess over gear and they think they're not getting anywhere because they don't have the right gear or the right setup or the right clients. And none of that, like none of that matters, but you will build your career with none of those things. Just like I did. Like I built a career basically with no gear, you know, I would run out of studio here and there. I built a career off having no clients, then gaining a client, then two, then three, then 10, then 15. And, you know, label gig stuff started with one label. And now it's like, I work with all of them. And even now, like the next 10 years, like it's just going to keep expanding and growing. Um, And there'll be a bunch of other wins along the way. So those would be my, my main things is like, show up, be responsible with the small things, be so consistent every day, just show up ready to learn, you know, wait for, not wait for connections, but naturally let them unfold and be willing to say, this is for me, this probably isn't a good fit for me, regardless of if there's money involved. And then educate yourself, become financially literate, um, find a good CPA, find a good lawyer and learn about business. and then apply that to music. So it's kind of a long-winded answer, but that's what it is. It's very good advice for sure, for sure. I think uh, having the, the business sense and the the, uh, the goal of treating it like a business or the uh, the intention of treating it like a business is, is crucial. So that's it's awesome. Yeah. And you've yeah. been very successful with that. And you're also somebody who makes great records too. So it's it's uh, a win-win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh so I wanted to ask, because you, you said that you started out mastering, like basically just taking L2 and, and just kind of like brick wall limiting it. So yes, how did you grow from, from that and like doing full masters? Wonderful question. Um, I basically started to try and educate myself on what mastering was, which once again came from some books, trial and error, talking to people, reading manuals of plugins and manuals of gear. Even if you don't own the piece of gear, you can download the manual usually. So I started to just nerd out for a lot of years trying to learn like, what is a map? You know, I, I knew what a massive passive did before I owned one for years. And a lot of those manuals will explain to you, here's how you use this for this thing. <laughs> like if you use this shelf, top end shelf, it'll make it sound airy and sparkly. And if you do that, then it'll do this. And so I started consuming, educating myself because I felt like most people weren't and tons of trial and error. And basically I, I felt like 
if I stopped thinking about loudness for a while and started focusing on how do I just make this sound balanced, basically. And I studied speakers. This was something I nerded out on. I studied speakers. How do speakers work? How do they push air? You know, what makes a speaker respond really well? What frequency ranges do speakers mainly live in? You know, and then I thought about those frequencies a lot and thought, well, if I boost some of those in these mixes and I subtract or reduce some of the things speakers hate, then maybe the music will sound much better coming out of speaker. So I started applying those sorts of things. I really focused on EQ balance and listening. I started consuming music and consuming mixes too. Because to become a master engineer, you can listen to finished products, but really I get paid to finish the record. So I take it from mix stage to mastering. And most of what, what is out there is just mastered records. So you don't get to hear the before and after usually. So I started asking people for mixes and then just to practice on, but then I also would go back to previous projects and remaster them and be like, well, what would have happened if I boosted 3dB at 47 Hertz instead of 2dB? Then I'd print it out, go listen to it everywhere and be like, okay, now the car is like farting out. <laughs> like that doesn't work. Well, what happens if you do it at hundred Hertz instead? Oh, well now it's, Actually, for rock, that's like super full. The drums are huge now, you know. So I started, you know, and this is part of it, is like there's not really a lot of great education out there on mastering. And there is a high amount of people on the internet now who basically are preaching that they make, they give you three tips to a big master, or four tips to a radio hit, blah, blah. And none of them have ever done any of that, you know. It's, it's, we're in an age where, um, where knowledge doesn't have to be true or false. It just has to be empowering. And so as long as someone says something that's empowering, people will most likely be like, well, it must be true. So if I came on here and I was like, here's three tips to the best master, boost two dB here, one dB here and take out this. I bet most people would be like, well, he seems to know more than me. So I'll just start doing that. <laughs> like. And that's how people start to get bad information. Um, but, you know, I just, I took the limiters off and I went back to, you know, studying mastering is about quality control. It's about balance. It's about cohesiveness. It's making sure that a record is balanced and will translate well to the consumer. And so part of that is enhancing what's great about the mix and performance and then taming into anything that might hinder it from translating from car to earbud to speaker, you know, phone, all that. And um, I found that just smashing stuff with an L2 um, didn't solve that problem. <laughs> it just made things louder. But when I would do a level match, which is always kind of important, um, you know, the original mix to the L2, but you pull that L2, the threshold, the ceiling output to be back lower to where the mix is. The mix most of the time to me was like, oh, the mix is actually still better. So I had to figure out how do you make things sound sonically better? And that comes from EQ in my approach. And then how do you, how do you use a limiter? Like what is the purpose of a limiter? What is the purpose of compression? And essentially to me, there's so much I could say on it, but a limiter and a compressor, the, the job is for it to basically create a more balanced and cohesive sound from start to finish because it's chopping off peaks and raising, you know, the, the valleys. So something that is inconsistent is now more consistent, which sometimes the listener goes, that's better. I enjoy when I don't have to change my volume up and down between verse and chorus. I just want to set it at five and let it go. And so um, you know, it's, it was learning my tools, learning what perceived loudness is, saturation, harmonics, distortion, um, what analog does, what digital does, you know, where they shine and where they both suck. Basically analog focuses on like the meat and potatoes, but isn't as transparent and clear as digital and digital is really good at preserving peak and clarity. So I work in a hybrid setup, which is like in the box computer that then goes to gear and then comes back. And I use really what, whatever is needed, but 
you can combine the two to kind of create what most I'll say newer, bigger master engineers and people like me, like we, we use the best of both worlds now, as opposed to just being one or the other. There's pros and cons to both. So it, it really, I wish there was like an easy thing to be like, I went to blah, blah, blah school and they taught me foundation, you know, but it was me trial and erring because most, most mastering guys I talked to didn't want to share anything insecurity of you're going to steal my secret, but I've learned now, like I can tell you exactly what I did on a master and you probably wouldn't be able to recreate it because you're going to hear it differently. You'll probably hear it and be like, well, I think it should be more top end heavier or more bass heavier. It should be punchier. And that's, what's great about like, it's what's great about the music industry is like you, there's room. I believe there's room for everybody because we're, we're creating things out of the abyss. Like a song is created out of nothing. It just isn't there. And then at the end of the day, it's there. And that's the gift of creation. And so we have infinite potential work. And that always has eased my mind of like, there's always going to be another song to master because people are going to keep pulling these songs out of the universe, essentially. <laughs> like you're just, songwriters are going to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden they're going to be like, here's another song. And then it starts the cycle again and it's, it keeps creating work and then they eventually sell the product and people buy it and it's a cycle. But that's, you know, I went from an L2 to like, I still like L2 sometimes, but I basically just educated myself in trial and error. There's nothing better to me than real life experience. And especially if you just start taking notes on a notepad or on your computer or whatever of what things do because mastering and most of music is all about troubleshooting. You have a singer who has a great voice, but she's too bright. So you got to find the right mic or preamp something darker, softer that will complement her voice. You can't always just throw up a U47 or something. That's amazing because sometimes it sucks. And that's the same with mastering. Like if I get a song that's, really dynamic but they want it to be sounding really loud and punchy i know okay i've got to go from step a here to b to c to d to e and maybe that means eqing first then compression or compression first to glue it all together then eq to like reintroduce what i kind of had to attenuate down then we hit a saturation that'll make it feel thicker and more dense you know and then a limiter to final at the level you know to make it quote unquote loud and then that's it but it's it's all about troubleshooting so i i would and now i just do it mentally because i have enough experience now but when i started i would just be like if i run compressor to eq it sounds like this to me if i run eq to compressor compressor eq if i flip flop these things it sounds like this what does the compressor sound like on a four to one ratio it sounds you know very natural what about eight to one well, now it feels a little more aggressive. What about 12 to one? Well, now it feels like I'm losing the punch of the kick in the snare. Well, is there a way to make that up? If we like the aggression, can you run an EQ after on say 65 Hertz for the kick and I don't know, 2K for snare, boost those things. Oh, well now they're back and now they're just more in my face. Do I like that better? Yes, better no. It's like master engineer is kind of like being at the eye doctor. Is it better one or two? It's a constant auditioning and better is more so it's different so there's really no like is it better it's more does it fit the client's vision you know and how i think based on my experience we need to get it to you know how do we marry the client's vision expectation with my experience of working on thousands of records that are now out and people think are good how do we marry that and so that comes from learning your tools learning your plugins if you're at home you have no gear no setup if you have any sort of DAW in your computer and plugins, you can do the same thing. Put in a stock plugin and a stock compressor on a song and just listen. Just literally, you have to be able to, you have to be patient and listen and go, what is this doing? And then make a mental note of that. And eventually, for me, it's like after five years, I finally just knew when I, as soon as I heard a song, I was like, it probably needs to do this. It probably needs this signal chain. And now 10 years in, it's like, I almost a hundred percent know immediately I need to do compressor EQ limiter saturator. I need to do compressor EQ compressor 
you know, you just start to know how to build up this, this puzzle or picture or tower correctly to where it doesn't look ugly or the tower doesn't fall over <laughs> from using an L2 and just removing everything and the mix sounds like a floppy mess and feels thin. So that's kind of how, you know, how I went from it. It's, it really comes down to education, paying attention and learning to listen and, and critically listening and going, not is this better necessarily, but is what is different now, you know? If I do an L2 up front, just take 6 dB off what's happening. Well, to my ears, it sounds like it's ripping out low end and mid range to make room for the top end to eat up more space to be louder. But now we lost all our sub information. <laughs> so maybe that's good. Maybe you want a really bright, intense mix and the sub is irrelevant to the client. So maybe that works, but most of the time people still want to hear bass. So especially in modern music, it's heavy bass. But um, so that's kind of that that answer i think hopefully that made sense yeah that's very helpful and i mean it, it's a, such a complex topic like we could talk about it right. for days on end so correct and release show that yes. is uh, the place for everything mastering for sure yes yeah yeah check that out because there's like 70 plus hours now of free there's no ads we don't sell anything outside of we do have merch but it's a break even merch store so that's not where we make money we don't make any money off the podcast. We just do it because um, we like helping educate people. And the one thing I will say now, three years of doing the podcast, I just put it together and I'm probably slow to this, but I have learned that now by educating people, they make better records and mixers make better mixes, which then makes my job easier. So on some level it pays off. <laughs> I've, I've finally had a big picture circle moment of being like oh the mixers know how to mix better now they know how to trust me more as master engineer because i've educated them for three years so now we're making better records all together and everybody looks better that way so check out that show if you're curious about even more lengthy answers well, it's, it's uh, super helpful you know i know this is the audience here it's all people who really are very into the technical aspect of it yeah. So, uh, you know, I know attack and release is a, a perfect fit for that, you know, and uh, it's um, it, it's interesting that you say that about like how kind of the, the mixing engineers have learned to work more around mastering. Uh, yeah. Like for 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 my understanding of it, you know, I see it as like gain staging and, and just getting the levels right and dynamic is kind yeah. of the, the best thing to do to set that up. But like, you know, there's a lot of people here who, who are doing it like all DIY, like, you know, like they they you know, are making the whole song and, and the, the all, right. all software. So in that kind of setting, like, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen some like really creative music that that's uh, loud and it's clipping the whole time, but then right. Like, also, Absolutely. Well, yeah. Like uh, Travis Scott <laughs> stuff. I love Travis Scott. I work a lot in rap. Travis Scott records are clipped on purpose. You know, it's, it's the whole, it makes the sound like you wouldn't have a Travis Scott, Mike Dean record unless Mike Dean, does what he does which is like pin it to his neve sidecar a hundred percent of the time with the texture all the way up so it crackles on big parts which gives it an energy and aggression so i i love that i don't have any issues with, with clipping i like clipping so that's fascinating really that like, yeah you know, just with your your track record as, as a mastering engineer to to be a big fan of clipping that, that kind of yeah. changes my perspective on it for sure yeah yeah i mean there's nothing I don't have any issues with with the way people make music. Even if you are a one-stop shop, you make it all and you master and you don't even know what mastering is, but you just put on a preset or ozone or something. You know, the the only thing I wish the audio community would do better would be take advantage of you have the ability to educate yourself, you know, especially with podcasts um or just trial and error. And that would be the only thing that is a frustration of, you know, I'm like the old guy now at 32 looking at talking and working with like 20 year olds or kids in college still. And, um, I sound like an old person, but really if you educate yourself, it just empowers you even more to continue to do what you're doing. So like you keep using the preset, but now if you educate yourself about how a limiter works, you can use that preset to your advantage you can make better records. Like, I know people make better records when they get educated always like that's 
all I see. And, um, you know, sometimes that just comes from trial and error, but you can fast track your frustration if you educate yourself. <laughs> so that's what I recommend, but yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Screen what else best. you got? Hmm. Uh, or we can be done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of that little section there. And, uh, yeah. So it's been awesome having you here today, Sam. Uh, I, I appreciate your time so much, bro. And uh, of course, uh, I look forward to hearing more more records. You know, I've already heard a ton. Like, you know, I, I think probably a bunch of the records we hear, uh, just you know, in, in general today, you're on a lot of them. So yeah, it's really thank cool. you. Yeah, and uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely, thank you. Bye. So that's just about it for today's episode of Producer Cast. That was an awesome episode, right? a whole hour long of just awesome awesome information from sam moses anyways if you're listening to this and uh you're, you're listening to it on the day of the launch we are giving away a pair of Tascam studio headphones with this episode to one listener so if you want to qualify for that be sure to visit us on twitter at the producer cast and uh retweet the post that we have there and then dm us and let us know what your favorite part of the episode was make sure that you're following at the producer cast and we will set you up with a entry into the drawing for this free pair of Tascam studio headphones i'm paying to ship them anywhere in the world so wherever you are we're going to get them to you if you win and it'll be a random drawing so make sure that you do those three things follow at the producer cast retweet our pin tweet and finally dm us your favorite part of the episode and that's just how we know that you watch the episode so dm us something interesting some insightful thing that you got from the episode and if it seems legit you'll get an entry into the drawing you know that's really just kind of our verification that you listen to the episode and i mean you know that's really an added bonus even if you don't get the headphones you know you got some awesome information on mastering and that is really something that I'm so grateful to have been able to bring you today. Thanks to Sam Moses. So thank you to Sam Moses again, and we'll see you next time. God bless.